uh, there's no jingle or anything. It's just my first question, uh, sure. which, which is always the same. Like, who are you and what do you do? Uh, well, Dobovicier, uh, Andrzej Kakosi. My name is Anthony Johnston, and I am a writer. I write uh, a whole bunch of different things, including graphic novels, video games, comic books, uh, novels, you know, prose novels, um, uh, some stuff for the screen. I have written some web animation. Just, uh, yeah, you know, I'll write pretty much anything if people will pay me to do it. Um, and I've been doing this now since 2000. Well, I, no, I've been doing it professionally. I've been writing professionally since 1996, okay. I, I think. Uh, but it was in 2002 that I became a full-time writer. Um, and it was a couple of years before then in 2000 when I first started writing fiction. The first things that I wrote were actually a role-playing game, uh, features for magazines and role-playing supplements, you know, for like Dungeons and Dragons style role-playing games uh, and journalism. But then I, I switched exclusively to fiction in 2000. And in 2002, I went full-time. Uh, I'm best known nowadays for writing a graphic novel called The Coldest City, which was adapted this year to a movie called Atomic Blonde starring Charlize Theron. Uh, so that's, you know, as you'd expect, that's become the thing now that everybody knows me for. Apart from that, in in other fields, I'm best known for writing the first Dead Space Woohoo. video game uh, and a whole bunch of other Dead Space games, actually. <laughs> but the the first one is, you know, the one that most people really took to heart. Um, and uh, in graphic novels and comic books, I'm also known for writing a post-apocalyptic epic series that ran for nine years called Wasteland, uh, nine years and 60 issues long. And a sci-fi crime series called The Fuse, which uh, until last year came out from Image Comics. We're on hiatus at the moment, uh, but we will be returning to that at some point, hopefully in the near future. So, like I say, a whole bunch of different things. And then my uh, my new big thing, uh, just actually in a few days time, is the launch of my first mainstream novel which is a, another spy novel, spy thriller, called The Exphoria Code. But unlike The Coldest City, which obviously takes place during the Cold War, uh, The Exphoria Code is a modern spy thriller and actually focuses around technology. It focuses around a lot of online technology, uh, the internet, you know, online anonymity, viruses, stealing computer code, that sort of thing, all wrapped up in uh, a sort of action spy thriller. So we're very excited about that. And as I say, that comes out in on December 14th here in the UK and Commonwealth countries. So if any of your listeners read English, you'll be able to import it from the UK. Um, but we don't yet have European publishers. Like, we're in talks, but we don't yet have, you know, European publishers and translations finalized. We hope to get there soon. Okay. That was, there's a lot to unpack there, but we'll start. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start. We'll start at the beginning, cause yeah, I figured like I just figured somehow, cause I read, I figured you started like full time writing around like two thousand, but since you wrote before that, I do have this weird question, cause cause your career kind of spans spans sorry uh, spans that time period where the internet actually became a thing. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, and I, I I always find that fascinating to talk to people that kind of went through all of that, and especially in a profession like writing. And because you started in journalism, and I'm still in journalism. Hello, <laughs> but that's that's always a fascination of mine. Just how how you saw that progression, where it was, you know, 
when you start, it was basically magazines and newspapers were doing just fine, basically. And then, yeah, well, they were, and in fact, uh, the f- <laughs> okay. So, I mean, I I got online fairly early for the UK. I know Americans were all online, you know, using CompuServe and stuff at their universities in the late eighties. But here in the UK, it took a long time for the internet, relatively anyway, to take off. Um, but I got on fairly early in around 1993, 94, something like that, uh, which, you know, as I say, for the UK is means I've been online for longer than most people. And back then it was all Usenet mm. news groups. Uh, the World Wide Web did exist, but it was very, very rudimentary, as I'm sure you remember. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, it did exist. And email was as far as I was concerned, one of the greatest inventions in the history of mankind. The idea that I could effectively communicate with somebody around the world and we didn't have to be even awake at the same time to carry on a conversation was astounding to me. That was, you know, as far as I was concerned, that was just an absolute breakthrough in communication. I still maintain it is. It's just that you know, email is now horribly misused, but the principle, the principle of it is still amazing. So, uh, so I got online and wasn't really thinking of anything to do with work at that point. I was just online as a kind of, you know, as a sci-fi lover basically and going, wow, this technology is amazing. I was reading Wired magazine when it launched and all that sort of thing. Then I, a, a few years went by and I, started writing as i say like uh role playing stuff because i'd always been doing that uh, from when i was a, a teenager and basically my first ever professional writing was for a role playing magazine a magazine about role playing games and it was done over the internet i made the submission through email over the internet so my career literally you know started online and it's been the case ever since This is the thing. I wouldn't have a career without the Internet, because especially with comics, so much of the creative talent is in America. Uh, But the Internet allowed me to connect with artists and editors and collaborators and basically have a career um, with despite the fact that obviously I don't live in America. I'm here in England. So that in itself has been amazing. And it's because I am I'm a bit of a geek anyway, a bit of a nerd. Um, I used my first Macintosh in 1988 and then promptly used it to design three school magazines, uh, which had previously all been, you know, designed traditionally, but I was like, no, 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 we've got this amazing technology. I'll let me have a go. Uh, because I just loved it. I absolutely fell in love with the, I I can't remember which Mac it was a, a plus or something. It was one of those with a little seven inch black and white screen you know um but i fell in love with it the moment i started using it i was uh, blown away by it so yeah i'm a bit of a nerd uh, i've always been into computers and technology i'm not an overly technical guy like i can't write computer code um oh, we're you know, in the same there, boat then yeah <laughs> yeah there are some technological concepts that just kind of I really struggle to understand, you know, I can write basically my website. I build my website myself and that's about the limit of my actual technical coding knowledge. However, going back to what you said about magazines, here's the crazy thing. I used to be a graphic designer uh, and I started out working in agencies, again, using Macintoshes, you know, uh, in agencies and pre-press bureaus and things like that. And then I progressed to designing magazines. 
and I worked for a few publishers and then wound up at a company called Future Publishing here in the UK, who at the time were mostly known for technology magazines. Yeah. Um, you know, Zone yeah, was one of them, right? Um, was Zone Future? Zone might have been might have been uh dennis publishing their rivals oh, okay. i'm not sure but pc format oh, okay. i think was was future and pc gamer was definitely future because kieran oh, yeah. my friend okay. my friend kieran gillen who was also now a comics writer was on that magazine um so yeah future were renowned renowned for writing you know making mostly technology and a lot of gaming focused magazines um and i went to work on dot net magazine which was a magazine about the internet like even more so than wired wired was about modern technology and yeah. you know sort of cyberpunks and stuff in general but dot net was literally just about the internet it was full of explanations for people who were gone what's this internet thing then and they pick up the magazine and go oh this is what it is this is how i get online there were tutorials guides we wrote <laughs> we wrote published guides to websites in a magazine <laughs> oh my god the the nostalgia and naivety you know looking back is amazing but that was and that was my dream job that was absolutely my dream job at that time because i was you know spending so much time on the internet anyway i'd already made lots of friends online yeah but did you like did you see it coming then like if you're literally doing like working for a magazine about the internet right was there any sense of what was about to come Well, you know, magazines would put their stuff basically up on the internet for free at first because it seemed like a good idea. And then, then that totally backfired for yeah, the next 20 yeah. years, basically. Uh, there was, I, I think, no. You know, you've got to be honest and say at the time, none of us really thought about that, the implications of it. We were, a, we were quite naive ourselves. Not all of us. Um, famously, <laughs> our, the editor who had launched the magazine and edited it for, mm, let me think, good Lord, five years, six years, quite some time. Uh, one of the best people I ever worked for, his name is Rich Longhurst, wonderful man, fantastic editor, very kind and good man. And just, yeah, you know, I had an absolute blast working under him uh, when he was editor. But I think he saw the writing on the wall because he left and started up a website <laughs> and basically made a small fortune uh as a re running a retail website so i think he saw the uh, writing yeah. on the wall even if the rest of us didn't <laughs> yeah well, see, that, that's the thing that kind of that's it that's the thing that interests me the most because I, i i kind of understand how you can just totally miss that even if you're right in the center of it yeah i, I do well, get i think if you're in the center of it it's easier Well, maybe, you, yeah. miss it. Yeah. you know it's like the whole bubble effect that we have now with social media i think it's much easier to miss that sort of thing it's like how uh and again you know this isn't really the way it's done anymore but back then you know you would have pc and mac magazines pc format mac format you know pc user mac user and within the editorial departments of them those magazines it was you know if you lived every day with those people uh it would be inconceivable to you that somebody would want to use the other platform yeah It was absolutely inconceivable to the team on Mac format that anybody would ever want to use a PC. But it was equally inconceivable to the PC format editorial team <laughs> that anybody would ever want to use a Mac. And, you know, and it, like I say, we have the same effect now with social media. Everybody can sort of experience it for themselves. So I think although 
we're seeing that we see that effect through a different technology. It's just human nature. Uh, and so, yeah, we did. We just we all missed it. And unfortunately, so did most of the publishing companies and many, uh, you know, companies like Dennis and Future at one time were behemoths. They yeah. were enormous, vast media empires in the UK. And now they are a shadow of their former self. It's quite sad, really. Yeah, that, that's, or, well, it's sad for me because I grew up reading magazines, so I'm nostalgic for them. <laughs> yeah, the the biggest gaming magazine over here now just ran into trouble. Like proper legendary magazine from like they started in '91. And, right, uh, yeah, right. and it's just gotten untenable apparently. But yeah, because we had actually one of my shows. We had the the head writer like a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, they don't know what's gonna happen, but it's just yeah, it just kills me when stuff like that happens. Basically, because I grew it up is, on those magazines as well. So yeah. exactly, it, it's terrible. But at the same time, you know, it, it's it's evolution. It's uh, you can't stop it, and if there's just no interest in it, then. You've got to move on and do something else. Yeah, but you see that. that oh, see, this is the the exact same conversation I have with every person that's like from America or uh, like England. You've been to Slovenia, right? You know how many of us yeah. there are. You know how the economy of scale works for any kind of project online. Like we're we're kind of screwed, honestly. <laughs> like, well, you're sl- you're screwed for Slovenia native Slovenian language yeah, stuff. Yeah, uh, you know, like one of the nice things, uh, one of the things I, I liked about, well, I should say, one of the things I found very convenient about Slovenia was how many of you there speak excellent English, <laughs> uh, and the ones who don't speak English probably speak, I don't know, German or Italian or something yeah. as well. You know, it's very rare to come across. Uh, a Central European at all, but especially a Slovenian, it seems, who doesn't speak at least two languages as well as their own. So, uh, you know, you're in a pretty good position, I think, to to reach out across Europe and beyond your own borders. That, that, that's kind of you. So, okay, let, let's, talk, let's talk about why would you, like, because the, the first thing, we're in a Slack together, we're not going to go into that, but like, the first thing you told me, you have a, a NSK pass, a passport, right? And I do, yes. Yes, and you're somehow a Leibach fan. So just explain that because I don't know. Like, how did that, how how did you come to Slovenia and why and Leibach? There's not. Okay, I don't well, know the t- what the question is, but just talk. <laughs> like I don't even <laughs> the, know. <laughs> <laughs> the two things are unrelated. Ah, okay. uh, as as amazing as that may seem. Um, uh, how can I Leibach were um, became a thing over here in the uk in i i think around the early 90s around the same time that i was getting online i suppose maybe a little earlier than that um they were i we used to have and i don't know how common this is around the rest of europe but we used to have uh and still do but a lot less arts and culture uh television programs that would actively seek out things from other countries so you might get 30 minutes every week on one of our minor BBC channels that would specifically go around Europe. Uh, and at that time, even, you know, behind what used to be the Iron Curtain, you know, into like newly liberated Europe, which was still a very unknown territory to most of us, obviously, and actively look for interesting cultural things, music, art, theatre, uh, writers, whatever, you know, poetry that was going on in those countries. And then, you know, uh, make a TV program that told you about maybe three or four of these things every week. And lie back. I don't want to say that that was the first place they appeared on UK TV, 
because mm. I just I genuinely don't know if that's the case or not. But it's the first place I saw them on UK TV on one of these programs. And it was, of course, it was uh, the live is life. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, yeah. <laughs> the Opus Day. Of course it was. You know, <laughs> it was that it was that video and then a short piece about uh, a piece of theater they did. That their performance art where they also you know did an industrial soundtrack and i was just blown away by everything about it um you know the well and also and you correct me if i'm wrong but as i remember it from the time there was also some talk that they were kind of you know pre the fall of the iron curtain lieback were kind of agitators and were uh you know political dissidents effectively well, well, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, because the, you see, the thing with Leibach over here is, at least from my point of view, because I, I, I was born just a little bit too late for it, because I'm, I was born in '83, right? Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, okay. the, the way the, the way it's always been presented to me, they're pretty much like they are the export of Slovenia. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I do. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of it's weird because. They're a big deal over here, and you're right. They, they were absolutely, they had like a dissident status, and they still do, honestly. But it's just this weird thing that's almost, like parts of it have become a, like sort of a myth to me as almost. And I, and, I, and it's it's always hard for me to talk about them because like I mostly knew them through their music. And then after, like, like in the 90s or maybe the 2000s, I learned all of the other stuff. So right. I'm, kind of, I'm kind of in the same boat as you are, if you know what I mean. It's like not like I, I sort of lived through it, but not really because I was just too young, basically. Right. But yeah, See, the, di yeah. the difference over here is that they were introduced to us as a band and as political agitators. Yeah, so that yeah. side of them was always, it's, you know, always came along with the music. And it was honestly part of what attracted me to it. You know, at the time I was. I mean, I still am quite, I'm still politically aware, but at the time I was more politically active as well. And just the very idea of uh, having, you know, just a few years before watched the Berlin Wall fall uh, on live TV pictures that were beamed, you know, live to the BBC from Berlin. Um, and I, I sat watching that absolutely wrapped, uh, you know, realizing that I was witnessing a genuine world-changing moment in history and so as it was only a few years after that that i first saw and heard lieback i don't know it just kind of i thought wow you know this is this band clearly are doing their own thing with no compromise uh <laughs> it's really interesting music uh they are very subversive clearly very satirical and allegorical and provocative and I, I always like provocative art. And also, it was just good music. And yeah. there was, yeah, yeah they, they kind of entered our consciousness in this country in that way through the industrial and gothic scene. Uh, and so, you know, a, a bunch of us, myself included, became fans, you know, rapidly went out and bought as many rec lieback records as we could <laughs> and have been fans ever since. And in my case, yes, actually did fill in the little card in one of the CDs and sent off for my that's, NSK passport. Oh, that's so awesome. Like so awesome. I, I've um, seen like two of those in real life so far. Like, right. just, yeah, like, I, I've got to, I've got to be honest. I don't know where mine is. I haven't, it, it's somewhere in a box, you know, I haven't looked at it in years, but yeah. yeah. Um, and then I came to Slovenia in, I think it was 2012, 2011, 2012 oh, okay. uh, for a video game 
job. I was, you know, hired to work on a video game with a developer in Ljubljana. Uh, and I came out for a week uh, and, you know, sort of spent that week in the studio having meetings and sort of uh, you know, discussing stuff, planning things with the developers. Came home, did work from here in England on it, then went back for another week. Uh, right at the turn of the season, <laughs> at the end of summer. Um, uh, so I witnessed the, uh, is it October 1st, when the weather just goes, okay, rain now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, witnessed that for myself. And I was like, oh, wow, it really did happen overnight. Um, and yeah, and that was it. And I literally just did those two weeks. The project fell through, uh, unfortunately, you know, just because this happens all the time with, well, as you know, with technology projects and certainly with video game projects uh, yeah. uh, all over the place, it just didn't happen. Not for anybody's, it wasn't anybody's fault, you know. Um, but those two weeks that I spent in Ljubljana, I really, really enjoyed. I loved the city. Slovenia itself is absolutely beautiful. My God, the view from your airport is amazing. <laughs> I mean, there's there's not many countries you can say that about, but I was sat on the concourse looking at the mountains across from your airport going, my God, even the view from the airport is yeah. amazing and beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I don't appreciate that enough. I think, yeah, which I'm just so used to it. It just doesn't even register, but I get that. Yeah, a you've lot, got to remember but... we don't, we don't have anything like the Alps yeah, here in England. Yeah. You know, the Alps are as big as England. So <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I started to appreciate the Alps more once I started, started traveling abroad. Right, like just... flying over them it takes so long to fly over them. My <laughs> goodness, honestly, that was the first time that I'd flown over the Alps or flown over them low enough that I could see them. You know, rather yeah, than in yeah. a sort of transcontinental thing. Uh, and I had no idea that they covered such a huge area. We started going over them. And I was like, "Oh, there's the Alps." Ten minutes later, that's still the Alps. My goodness. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, I do love that line. You the, the view from the airport. I think that's yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's true. Because <laughs> yeah. I I used to play basketball in a small town just right next to the airport, and so oh, I right, used to right. drive from basically to Ljubljana and like to the airport basically for like five times a week for like right. four years so, straight. So I looked so at those mountains. Completely yeah. blasé about those mountains. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so okay, the the okay, let's do the video game stuff first, and then we'll go into comics because I have a okay. couple of weird questions there. But like, okay, so so Dead Space, I actually played through Dead Space before I knew of your existence as the guy that wrote Dead Space. Sure. And then after I found it, I said Dead Space, like, is that that's a genuinely great game as far as I'm concerned. But like, how does that like? I don't know how that works. So you're a writer, you're doing comics and stuff. Right, but how? Because that, like, that space is a big title, right? Or, or am I? Like, yeah, yeah, but yeah. No, it was. It was a big AAA title. Yeah. yeah cause how does that? I don't know. I don't understand how that well, crossover happens. Well, there are okay. So there's two sort of things to talk about here. The first is just to say that, uh, in terms of the mechanics of how you write a game, it is different from game to game. And on Dead Space itself, I didn't design the game, but I was hired to write the script. So I wrote the script that all the actors are acting. Yeah. Uh, and I wrote the cutscenes that the, you know, that were then animated, um, you know, with the characters. Well, I say cutscenes, there aren't, 
there aren't any true cutscenes in Dead Space, but there are computer controlled yeah. characters moving around. So, and yeah, you know, they were animated according to the script I wrote and stuff, but I didn't actually design the game. So things like the levels themselves and wh- what order you faced certain challenges in, that wasn't, you know, I didn't design that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did write the entire script and yeah, all of the sort of quasi cutscenes and and everything. And uh, and on other games, you might, you know, I might be more involved. On some games, I've been actually less involved. You know, I've literally just written cutscenes that are practically already animated. No. Um, it's just different from game to game. However, uh, Dead Space was my first video game, which is kind of. That's I mean, at, at the time, at the time, I didn't realize. Well, at the time, I don't think anybody knew how big a deal that would turn out to be. But now when I tell people that that was the first video game I worked on, <laughs> most people in the industry are like, what? That How? Um, and the truth is that I kind of fell backwards into it because I was originally hired to write a Dead Space comic book that was being developed, a prequel comic book that was being developed at the same time as the video game uh and that in itself at the time was unusual uh it used to be the case used to be very common that if there were going to be any comic spin-offs from a video game they would come after the game was published sometimes many many months after the game was published and they would be handled by the marketing team and written by somebody who might never have played the game and not seen any design documents. And yeah, they were just not generally very good. Uh, but the dead space team, they wanted to make what we would now call transmedia. Dead space was one of the first games that fully embraced the concept of transmedia. And so they specifically wanted a comic book that would come out before the video game as a prequel and lead up to the launch of the video game. The idea was that the last issue of the comic would be released like a couple of weeks before the video game so that people could read the comic book building up to the video game, read the last issue and then jump, you know, buy the comic, the game a couple of weeks later and jump straight into it, um, which is exactly how it was published. But that approach was really unusual. And that meant for me to be able to write that comic i had to have access to all of the design discussions and the development Uh documents i was you know i was in on a lot of those calls as it happened the other two main writers who were along with the producers and designers actually coming up with the backstory and helping create the universe for the games were also comic writers and they were warren ellis and rick remender both of whom are also you know, friends of mine, but that I didn't actually know they were working on it until I joined the team. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I was working while they were doing that stuff. I was working on the comic and coming up with ideas for the prequel, creating those characters. And it was all going along very nicely. And then I turned in, I think the script for the second issue of the comic, there were six issues in total. And I turned in the script for the second issue. Uh, and my, contact there the liaison there basically said we really like what you're doing with the comic uh you know it really fits our vision for the game would you like to have a chance to try out for writing the video game and and i said hell yeah (laughs) um 
because I've been playing video games pretty much since video games existed. Um, you know, I've literally been playing video games since the early 1980s. Uh, and so, and, and I wanted to write video games, but I had no idea how to get into this industry. And here they were almost offering it to me on a plate. So I, I had to do a tryout. I did a, a sort of test thing where they gave me a scenario and said, okay, write these cutscenes. Uh, you know, this has to happen with these characters and we need to get from A to B to C by the end of these cutscenes. Uh, you know, go away and do that and we'll see if you're any good. So I did. And yeah, I they liked it and they said, right, and hired me to write the entire video game. And so I did. Um, and it is a crazy story. It's one of those things where you couldn't possibly replicate it now. People say, how do I get into writing games? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Yeah, but that yeah, because that when I when I did the research, I just figured there'd be like a bunch of stuff before that, right? But there's not. Like there's yeah, just, exactly. You'd yeah. think that you'd work your way up to yeah, it. Yeah, basically. But no, yeah. I just right okay. in on the ground floor with a big sixty million dollar game or however much it cost. Yeah. You know, it was crazy. Yeah. Now it now it seems even more impressive. So <laughs> like that's even more like <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. And I actually like I, it's one of the like I played it on the Xbox, uh, the three sixty. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, it's one of those games that kind of stuck with me. Like, it's, I genuinely enjoyed that game. So that when I, it was genuinely new. That's the thing. It yeah. was genuinely innovative. No HUD. Yeah. You know, no, no UI. Yeah. Uh, and the suit was the, basically the HUD. Like you're right. The, yeah. the suit was your UI exactly, yeah. and the concept of having to slice off limbs rather than headshot, you know, was actually at the time quite new. I don't think anybody had done that before. Um, and also at the time there had been a real dip in survival horror games. Yeah. Uh, you know, I love survival horror video games. That's one of the reasons that I wanted to work on dead space to start with. And there had been a real lull in the quality of survival horror around that time. Uh, you know, we'd reached the point in resident evil where I can't remember his name, but the big muscly dude was literally punching boulders in one of the games, uh, you know, and the boulders were cracking as he punched them. I can't even remember which Resident Evil that was, but I remember that being yeah. a source of great, you know, ridicule and amusement uh, among gamers. It, it was, we'd, survival horror had kind of lost its way. And then here comes Dead Space, a truly frightening game, a truly gruesome, grim game that is not about heroics, is not about uh, shooting, you know, thousands of bullets into hordes of zombies. In fact, a game where for most of the time you are on your own, just like the old Resident Evil games, and that's yeah. what made it so scary. Um, so yeah, it was it was lightning in a bottle. You know, it was one of those things that at the time none of us had any idea we were making something that people ten years later <laughs> would still go, "Wow, I loved that game. That's amazing." Um, but, but we did somehow, that's what we did. Yeah. So just so you know, that magazine I was talking about before the legendary one of the game magazine, uh, mm-hmm. they gave the PC version an 87 score. Uh, and okay. the most you can get is 94. It's a weird system, but it's, that's a very weird system. <laughs> it's a, it's a, you don't even, yeah, it's just cause they just have been doing it for so long. I think there's been like 
three games that have gotten a 95, but they, like in the 20, what, like seven right, years right. now or whatever. So, yeah. so 87 is actually. Oh, yeah, that's, it, that's as good as it gets. Good yeah, that's yeah. pretty. Yeah. Like the, in the 90s, it's usually like a Zelda game, maybe the good ones. Right. And, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> well, 87 is awesome. Just so you know, just, yeah. 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 No, that's great. <laughs> okay. Just uh, one more thing with, with, with the video games. Like, when you write it, you, you, I understand it's different than anything else you write, right? But like, when are you a, a present at all for the recording of like the actors and stuff, or do you just turn in the scripts and then that gets taken care of somewhere else? I always prefer to be there when ah, the lines okay. are recorded. Yes, I, I always ask if I can be. I always like to be there uh, for many reasons. One of which is that. It is very common, and this happens in TV and film as well. Any any time that you write a line that an actor then has to say, it is very common that at some point one or maybe several of those lines just won't sound right when the actor says them. Or the actor might just have trouble getting their mouth around the sequence that you've put the words into. It just isn't coming out right. And so you have to change it. You know, it's much easier to change the words than to change the actor. So, uh, you know, you've got to change what they're saying. And if you, if I'm not there, if the writer isn't there to do that, then it's going to be the game director or possibly the sound recordist and sometimes even the actor themselves, you know, rewriting it instead. And that sometimes can be okay but the problem with video games is that a lot of the time actors are recording lines with no context or very little context of why their character is saying this line because they're recording lines remember that are played quite often especially in things like an rpg that are played uh, according to actions that the player takes you know they're not mm. necessarily recording a cutscene that will just play in a linear fashion so they might record 10 different variants of essentially the same thing to be played in random order according to certain specific triggers. And so it's very difficult for the actor to get their head around the context of every single line and understand how they might have to reword something. Uh, whereas, of course, the writer has it all in, you know, I've got the whole thing in my head. So I always would prefer to be there just for that reason alone. I mean, also, it's fun. You know, actors are nice people. Yeah. It is it is fun to hear people recording your lines and stuff. You know, there is that aspect of it. But from a purely sort of practical business point of view, in my view, it's a good idea to have the writer in recording just because you never know when you might need a line rewritten. So I always ask to be there. However, I don't always get it. <laughs> <laughs> not every developer, not every game publisher wants the writer there. Not all of them can afford to have me there. Um, you know, it's just, or sometimes schedules clash. That's just, you know, one of those things, but I always prefer to be there if possible. And I certainly, uh, whenever, you know, young writers ask me for advice, that's one of the things that I always say to them, you know, if you're going in for a job to talk about taking on a job, talk about that aspect of it uh you know and get that understanding up front that you want to be there when things are being recorded because i think games are always better for it when the writer is present always all right we'll we'll 
go into comedy, it would have gone to be all over the place today. But yeah, right, <laughs> that's just... right. My my career is all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, but th- explain something like because <clears throat> when I read up, every time I get into comics, and I've read a couple of them, even some graphic novels and stuff. Like every time I get into it, there's like the publishing houses, right? It's like going in. Like if you start liking watches and you go into watches and there's like five companies that you're supposed to know about right it's the same with the comic book publishers so so like because you did some stuff for marvel right a little yeah yeah okay but like they're how are they in relation to the publisher that published wasteland let's say because i don't because they both look the same to me right right but i don't understand yeah i don't know how that whole world works and then there's the whole image comics thing, which I don't even understand. Like, <laughs> it's just so confusing to me. Like, as I, I just look at the titles, right? You'll just see the book and you'll say, oh, I like that one. But the like with anything else that's nerdy, but well, with anything else in life, like there's this convoluted system where you're supposed to know the big ones from the little fish and the, you know, if you can. But the thing is, yeah. your approach is is better i wish that more <laughs> seriously yeah, I, no, I, I, yeah, I, i'm yeah. deadly serious i wish that more people approached comics in that way and just looked at a book at the title at the cover read the blurb on the back and said yes this is a book i would like to read rather than caring about who publishes it you don't care who publishes a novel that you're reading yeah you know you don't nobody nobody follows I don't know, scholastic publishing and buys all of scholastics crime books. You know, that doesn't happen. You follow authors, you follow creators uh, and sometimes characters in the case of franchised works, but nobody in the world of fiction follows publishing houses. And I wish that was the same in comics. Now, Marvel, like Marvel and DC are the two huge ones. Obviously they're the ones who make all the big movies that you see on the screen and stuff. They're the big, big dogs. After them comes these days IDW and Dark Horse, who are very big but not as big. You know, they're they're a level below Marvel and DC, and then below uh, and then Image are sort of off to the side somewhere in their own little world. It's kind of very difficult to pin Image down um, because what Image is is a home for uh, independent creator-owned works but they are a big company. So they publish books that might seem like kind of small artisanal affairs, but as a company, they have a big reach, which is why when something like the walking dead or saga becomes a big hit image can take advantage of that. Um, And then that's basically how I first heard the name. I think it was through the walking dead basically. Right. I think so. And so many people did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then several rungs down the ladder, you have companies like Oni Press, who I've published a lot of own graphic novels with, and they yes, they publish Wasteland, and also uh, The Coldest City. So, uh, you know, they publish a very wide variety of material, and there's a lot of companies around that sort of level where, you know, they're a, a viable, profitable concern that publishes a wide range of books, but your average man in the street has no idea who they are. Uh, you know, they might know one or two of their titles if they've had movies made of them, like Coldest City or Whiteout or Scott Pilgrim, uh, in the case of Oni. But oh, Scott would... Pilgrim is Oni Press? Yes, it is. Yes. Oh, okay. You see, I had right. no... Okay, yeah. Right. And that's my point. You yeah. had no idea. <laughs> yeah. Most people don't, you know. Um, and like I say, I 
personally think that's a better way to be. I think readers shouldn't care who publishes these things. But because we've had 50 years of these ridiculously convoluted uh, superhero universes that Marvel and DC have built, um, it's distorted the comics industry. Uh, and I'm not using that as a pejorative, but I mean, it's literally reshaped the comics industry in their image. Yeah. Um, and so it's very difficult for anyone not doing what Marvel and DC do to gain as much traction as they have, um, unfortunately. And that's what I mean. Like, Yeah, you're right. I did do a bit of work for Marvel. I had fun doing it. It was great. But if anybody looks at my Marvel work, they'll see that what I'm basically doing in almost all of my Marvel work is effectively writing crime stories that happen to feature superheroes <laughs> um, because that's more my kind of thing. I like writing sci-fi and crime and mystery and spy thrillers. I don't, I'm just not that bothered about superheroes. They, they can be fun. You know, and like I say, I had fun writing daredevil and stuff, but it's never, it was never my life's ambition. Whereas for some of the people, for, for Americans, especially who grow up, reading Batman and Superman and Spider-Man and Wonder Woman, they have such amazing nostalgic affection for yeah. those characters yeah. that for some of them, it is literally their life's ambition to, you know, write Batman or write Spider-Man or something, yeah. whereas it never was for me. So like I say, I had fun doing it uh, and, you know, and I'm, I might do it again, who knows, but I've just, I don't have that childhood nostalgia for those characters. And so I'm, to be honest, happy to leave those jobs to people who do have that nostalgia and really, really want to write those characters. And I'll be off over here in a corner writing my strange sci-fi crime stories and spy thrillers. You know, that's, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm, I'm the same way as a reader. Cause like, I'll, and even with the movies, like uh, I think Jason Snell recommended a comic, like the, the iron fist. I read, oh, yeah, that, yeah. read that thing through. It was nice. Just had no idea who the Iron Fist was. I think oh, but that's okay because that book is designed for people who had no idea yeah, who yeah, Iron that, Fist that's was. Why, yeah, that's why, that's why I think he recommended it to me. But even like the Marvel movies, like I, I have like an affection for Batman because Batman's been around for a while. But like, I don't care about Catman America, really. They're just fun movies to me. Right, and right. Like not all of them are fun, but like some of them are like just great action movies. But there's no linkage between me and Captain America and ant-man and whatever like yeah so i, I kind of understand where you're coming from there so um, yeah it's as you i'm the same you know i like some of those movies uh, some of them are really really good movies yeah. but yeah you know i just enjoy them as good movies i'm not a completist there are lots of marvel and dc movies that i haven't seen because i you know i sort of thought eh, that doesn't really look like it'll appeal to me yeah but okay so the the okay before we get to the colder city and then uh the movie because we have to talk about that. I think that's like we're obligated somehow. But like <laughs> the whole I'm I'm obligated. I've talked about nothing else for the last year. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. I know that's what I'm, like I'm trying to like I'm trying to No, it no, no. The honestly, <laughs> it's fine. I I don't mind, honestly. <laughs> no, but the the see, I am a terrible person when it comes to reading stuff like novels and stuff. Cuz I just read so much for like like about technology and stuff. I just don't have like the energy to to actually read a novel, but I do read some and I do like the whole spy genre. Like, that's sort of like, I don't know how, it, uh, John Le Carré? Well, how do you say mm -hmm. his name? That's right? it, yeah, John Le Carré. Okay, yeah. Yep. yeah. So I, 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 I'm I, a fan of his stuff. Like, a genuine fan. 
like the whole cool. smiley stuff and tinker time. Yeah, yeah. Like I love all of that stuff. That that's why I sort of um, I, I haven't I I ordered the uh, Call the City just for the record, so I haven't read it yet. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but I, I did I did see the movie, and it's that's my kind of thing basically. And I just wanted to ask, like, where does that sort of fascination for you come from with the whole, you know, maybe the eighties? If we just, you know, if we focus on the Call the City, then, but like the, you know, the, the spies and the Iron Curtain and. Since you're a fan of Leibach, I shouldn't be that surprised, really. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, do, do you have like an affinity for that stuff, or you know? I I grew up in the eighties. Yeah, you know, I'm a, yeah. I'm a child of the late seventies and the nineteen eighties, and uh, I grew up in a world where it seemed like the Iron Curtain would be there forever. It seemed inconceivable that the Berlin Wall would ever come down uh these were just you know that was the map you looked at the world you looked at the map of europe and there was the berlin wall and there was the iron curtain and that it was just a fact and it had been there since before i was born obviously so the idea that it one day it wouldn't be there was inconceivable to me and so uh i mean i i grew up loving things like james bond movies because you know who doesn't yeah um but beyond that, I also had a sort of an aff- well, I, I think what it was was as a child, I had an affinity also for the kind of noir, you know, dark alleys and trench coats and that sort of thing. Um, and then, of course, when you get to Cold War spy fiction, that's kind of a combination of the two. You've got this amazing setting of a divided Europe, but you've also got the noir mystery elements Um and so when when I kind of graduated, if you like, beyond James Bond and discovered authors like John le Carre and characters like Smiley, um, it really struck a chord with me. I, don't, I can't explain why other than to say there is something about that genre that just really, really appeals to me and fascinates me. And part of it is because, like I say, that time in the real world fascinates me. Looking back, like I say, the idea that the Berlin Wall would come down just seemed like madness um you know we i certainly here in the uk lived as we used to say in the shadow of the mushroom cloud you know the prospect of nuclear war breaking out at any moment seemed very real and we were all genuinely scared that it would actually happen uh without warning you know um we even had (laughs) hit pop songs about it you know because it was such a part of our culture um and so when that all changed, I I think, if anything, it increased in me, not in most people, but in me, I think it increased my interest in that area of fiction. Because now, suddenly, it was historical fiction that oh, was no longer, you know, it was no longer the real world. It had been the real world. It's like um, when I grew up, I used to read a lot of World War II fiction. And I think it was that same... Uh, that same kind of appeal world war two fiction was yes world war two was real but it was so long ago and the world was is so different now that you can read it as you know a different world a world that was real but that we don't have anymore yeah, and i almost think sci-fi basically yeah <laughs> kind of yeah, yeah but i think that's i think maybe that's why my interest in cold war spy fiction intensified after the iron curtain came down and after a liberated Europe because 
yeah, it uh, it became this other thing that I just happened to have lived through. Um, and so, yeah, I'd kind of carried that fascination with me for many years afterwards, but I'd never written uh, a spy book or a spy story at all. I read John le Carre and Len Dayton, and I loved as uh, a TV show called The Sandbaggers here in the UK, which is wonderful. And, you know, I just I loved spy fiction, but I'd never written any. I just never kind of thought about it, I guess. And then I was asked to write a spin-off series for uh, a spin-off miniseries from a book by my friend Greg Rucker, who uh, used to write a spy st- series for Only Press, again, called Queen and Country, which was absolutely hands down my favorite comic i mean i greg is a friend anyway but i'm also one of his biggest fans and queen and country for my money was the best comic of the entire um early 2000s like no question there was nothing being published that was as good as that to my mind and remarkably in 2005 i think it was he asked me to write a spin-off miniseries about one of the characters in it um and so I did, uh, you know, after I'd sort of got over my stage fright, <laughs> I, I did, I wrote it and I had such incredible fun writing that spin-off miniseries that I thought, oh, wow. Yeah, I do like spy stuff, don't I? Turns out it's fun to write as well. Um, and so I decided that the next big project that I did uh, as a passion project would be a spy book that I would do a Cold War spy thriller. Uh, and that was in 2008. It was, I uh, got the time uh, and made the time and cleared a, a couple of months in the summer and wrote, started writing what would eventually become The Coldest City. Um, and it was just born out of this desire to write a Cold War spy thriller of my own um, in a style that, I would want to read. Oh, so, oh, okay. So how big did it get then to, to be picked up? Did, do you know what I mean? Like, cause I, I don't understand like that. How does it then get to a, cause if it's a passion project, right? Okay. So it gets published, right? But it, I, I imagine it has to get, you know, some sort of commercial success to even get on the radar of somebody that wants to make a movie or am I like, well, that's most of the time. Yes, that's the case in the case of this, uh, because I already had a very long standing relationship with only press. When I started writing the coldest city, I didn't have a publisher. I actually ah, wrote, okay. uh, like I actually, of those two months, I spent the first month writing, uh, about half of the book without a publisher at all so because in 20, i won in 2012 the time of economic prosperity you just spent no 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 this was in 2008 <laughs> oh this is that, was oh. 2008 okay uh, <laughs> in the in the summer so even worse this was during the whole subprime yeah. loan crisis yeah, basically. Um, so <laughs> awesome. yeah i had no publisher but i i started writing because i wasn't sure if it would be any good and then i got about halfway through and thought okay this is good uh, oh, okay. the, you know the, there's something here and so then i got in touch with only press uh, cause as I say, I have a longstanding relationship with them. They'd pub- already published several of my graphic novels and comic series. And I said, look, well, and they were publishing wasteland at the time. And I said, look, you know, this is the idea. This is the thing I want to do, but I want to do it as a, an original black and white hardback graphic novel. 
which if you know anything about the American comics industry is the least commercial format that you can <laughs> possibly publish something in. Um, oh, and by the way, you know, no superheroes. Uh, it was just, it was absolutely anti-commercial, but to their credit, because they trusted me and they liked the idea, only said, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. Um, nice. yeah, no, as I say, that's, and I don't really think any other publisher would have. So, uh, so that was in 2008. I finished the script. Uh, we then looked for an artist. We got Sam Hart, who was my first choice, actually. So we got very lucky there. Um, and he drew the book, took a couple of years. And then we, you know, sort of were all geared up to publish it. However, rewind a little. When I finished. No, actually, before I finished the script, Only Press had a uh, what we call a media arm, which is to say, you know, a, a, they had a partnership with some producers in Hollywood uh, for what's called a first look deal, where anything that Oni Press published and to which they had an option contract, uh, those producers would then go out and try to sell that as a movie to a movie studio. And the pitch document that I sent to Oni to propose the book to them caught their eye caught the eye of of the producers um and they actually (laughs) even before i'd finished writing they were already talking to people in la (laughs) saying we're going to be doing this book and we think it's going to be great is anybody interested um and then when i finished the script and this is very unusual normally they would take around a finished comic uh because the truth is that people in hollywood don't like to read they because they they read all day long the last thing they want to do like you were saying the last thing they want to do is read some more um so comics and graphic novels are actually great because it doesn't feel like reading to them so you can give them something it's got pictures they can flick through it and decide very quickly whether they like it or not so it's very unusual what they did but what they did was take out my script before it was drawn and said uh-huh. here's the script uh you know it really is good and we think you should buy it. And uh, one of the people they were talking to was Charlize Theron's production company. Charlize at the time was looking for something like this. She was looking for a project that she could buy, that she could option herself and star in, and that it would be a vehicle for her, an action movie vehicle for her to to be a star. Um, and so, yeah, we were just in the right place at the right time. She was looking for a project like this. We had a project like this. Uh, and they really liked the treatment and the script. And so they started negotiating. And then three months before the book was published, they they optioned it. They bought the option. Oh, so wow. Actually the, okay. Yeah. So actually, the commercial success of the book was kind of irrelevant because they'd already bought the option. Um, And that was that was three years. It then took three years of development to get to a point where they had a budget and a director and a final draft of the script. And then they started casting and filmed and blah, blah, blah. And then two years later, you know, we have a we have a movie that came out earlier this year. So. But yeah, it all started in, uh, well, all started in 2008, but the, the movie stuff really started in 2012 when they optioned it, as I say, three months before it was published. So showing, you know, an enormous amount of faith really in the material. That's kind of a, okay. I, <laughs> I just, yeah. Wow. 
even be okay and then okay so when you were when we're talking about the video games right because you said you wanted to at least be there i know like somebody else then did the screenplay but we're like because the the image i have in my head have you seen the movie adaptation the I have, yes uh, well, no oh god yeah <laughs> you were not like the nicholas cage character like you were not some guy <laughs> no. like okay yes just yeah no. i, I love adaptation for what it's worth <laughs> oh yeah yeah i do I, it's like one of my favorite movies honestly it's but, a like, wonderful yeah, wonderful yeah. subversive movie i love it yeah um like the one movie that kind of makes you think that nicholas cage, cage can actually act he really can act yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. When he, when he puts his mind to it and gets the good script. Yeah, yeah. basically. <laughs> okay, um, so yeah, but how was your experience when the movie was being made then? Well, like, it was, uh, I was, I was a co-producer on the movie. So I read the script, Kurt Jonstad wrote the screenplay and I read his drafts and gave notes and feedback on his drafts. Um, but I, no, I wasn't sort of watching over his shoulder or, you know, I wasn't consulted before he started writing but i was giving notes and feedback after he'd done his first draft and we were refining and polishing it um and then i was when things really started moving and we started casting and you know getting locations and stuff i was kept in the loop uh i was consulted a little on casting i visited the set for a few days in budapest mm. um and then when the rough cut of when the first edit, the rough cut of the movie was finished, I saw that as well. Uh, that was actually streamed to me across the internet uh, <laughs> because I was here in England at the time. And obviously, yeah. you know, the editing suite is in Los Angeles. So that was streamed to me on a secure private stream uh, over the internet. And then I watched it, took notes and gave feedback and notes on that as well. Uh, and then obviously I attended the premieres and stuff. So I was involved, but I wasn't, I wasn't there day to day. It's not like I was on set the whole time throughout the whole shoot. I wasn't oh, okay. in the editing suite, you know. Yeah, um, but, that, but like, like they, it sounds like they, I mean, it sounds like you weren't, but you were involved with the plus, you know, you weren't oh, just yes, the guy yes. with the first script. That, that's that's sort of where my question was. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, but I, I honestly, I wouldn't have wanted to be there every day and in the editing suite and what have you because I'm probably you know too close to the work because it's my mm. work. Yeah. Um, when I got to the set, uh, Dave and Charlize, bless them, were both apologizing to me about the like, you know, changes they'd made, uh, <laughs> from the, from the comic to the movie. And I, I was, I, I, you know, I tried to put them at ease. I said, look, it's fine. Um, I've done adaptations myself. I have adapted, uh, short stories and books and even a screenplay in one instance two comic books and two graphic novels. So I understand this process. I understand when you're adapting a work that you have to make these changes. You know, don't, I'm not precious about it. Don't worry about it. And I summed it up as, look, I've already written the best graphic novel I can. You know, we've already made the best graphic novel that we can. Now it's your job to make the best movie you can. And if to do that, you have to change things, go for it. You have my blessing. And I, I think that helped a little, you know, I think you put everybody at ease. I wasn't going to be the guy storming onto set going, how dare you change a word of my genius? And, you know, <laughs> I'm not that guy. I've never been that guy. Um, and so, yeah, I was just happy that we got a great movie at the end of it. That's all I wanted. Yeah. Um, as it turned out, the movie actually is quite faithful to the book. Um, it's, it's different in some ways, but very, very faithful in other ways. Uh, you know, much more faithful in terms of the story and the characters than many 
film adaptations of books are, believe me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was, del- I was delighted with the end, uh, result, which is why I've been happy to do all of this as I say, for, it feels like for the last year, all I've <laughs> done is be interviewed about atomic blonde, but that's fine because I th- genuinely think it's a great film. So I'm very happy with it. So I'm very happy to talk about it. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it as well. And, uh, my girlfriend loved the coats just so you know. The coats. Excellent, excellent. Those coats are pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. Even I noticed the coats. Let's let's be honest. Yeah. Like we all know. Did you did yeah. you also notice the line when she comes out of uh, Templehof Airport? Um, she's only got one suitcase, and it's quite a small suitcase. Yeah, yeah. And there's no way that all of the clothes that she wears in the movie could possibly <laughs> fit in that suitcase. And so, when they realise that, that's when they there's a quick line in there where the guy who meets her at the airport says oh your luggage uh, has been yeah you've yeah. got checked luggage and she says oh it's been sent to the hotel yeah yeah and okay. that that line is there because as they were filming it they realized and this is what i mean about having you know uh having to make changes they realized there's no way all the clothes she wears are going to fit in that suitcase oh nice okay <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. okay so okay before we go to the last part of this thing where you talk about your you know hardware and software and stuff uh, i do have one more, like one like like how how weird is it for you to be sort of you know to the the end product there was just like a, like a, basically a Hollywood movie with Charlie Theron and James McAvoy right and you, you're somebody who like writes graphic novels like that how cool is that to you personally still oh it's very cool it's very cool yeah um, you know I imagine you you can't really get over that or or can you like I don't know how to, like I've never I'm never gonna be in that position but like how how I, yeah. I think you kind of have to get over it in a sense, because otherwise, uh, you know, you become, you sort of, you're unable to function. (laughs) Um, the thing, the thing is that I, because of the time in which I sort of, you know, came up through the comics industry, the idea of comics being adapted to movies, being optioned for movies and adapted as movies has always been there. Uh, you know, it's kind of always been present and I've had other books optioned, before the difference is that none of them actually went through the whole process and became a movie um but i've had several books optioned over the years that you know where things then just fizzled out and it didn't go anywhere um and i thought that's what would happen with this so i refused to allow myself to get excited until things were really moving until we actually had financing in place and sets booked and actors booked and like oh my goodness we really are going to make a movie um at that point i allowed myself to get excited okay nice you know because you, you've got to you've got to allow yourself that kind of like wee yeah um, that's yeah but that was my question yeah because it, it's kind of awesome that, that. but it, it is it is but at the same time i have never despite this idea that as i say you know the comics being turned into movies is not unusual I have never allowed myself, I've never wanted to allow myself to, when I'm writing a comic, let that affect the writing, to think to myself, oh, actually, if I wrote this bit here, that would look great as a movie. (laughs) I I don't do that. I don't allow myself to do that because I think what you end up with there is a worse comic. I think when, when you're writing, no matter what medium you're writing in, you must always take advantage of the unique qualities that that particular medium has. You must write a story which takes full advantage of everything you can do in that medium. And to do that means 
not compromising for the sake of another medium. So yeah, I don't, I never write a comic thinking, well, if I write it this way, it'll look really good on screen. That's, you know, I think that's a fool's errand. Um, and so, and so I still write like that, you know, even now, even obviously after this has happened, there is, you know, there's increased interest in a lot of my other work, uh, you know, from people who want to make them into TV shows and movies. And that's wonderful. But I just, because I've always done it that way and because I do genuinely believe that the work is better for it, I still write in that sense of this is a comic or a novel or whatever it is, you know, a book or something. Um, and so I, this, that's what I'm going to write and I'm not going to let myself think about how it might be turned into another medium. Because I think, as I say, that's just, that does a disservice to the work. Um, outside of the actual work itself, honestly, after a while, and this is a terrible thing to say, but <laughs> after a while, it gets a bit boring. <laughs> and yeah. what, and what, what I mean by that, I don't mean being asked about it and stuff by people like yourself. That's fine. But what I mean is the actual process. Once you've been on a movie set, you realize how boring movie sets are. Yeah, it's movie a job, sets, right? It's a, they just are a dull. Job. Yeah. Yeah. If yeah. you don't have anything to do. Because when I visited the sets, I didn't have a job. I was just there to say hi to people, have my photograph taken, do some interviews for the DVD, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't actually have a role. I didn't have any function to perform. And so, yeah, my goodness, you know, <laughs> after the initial kind of you get there and it's like, wow, movie stars and a director and a big camera and like, this is all amazing. And three hours later, when they're on take 20, uh, you know, and <laughs> you're just bored out of your mind. Um, and it's the, and it turns out it's the same thing with, uh, movie screenings and premieres when you're, oh yeah, when you're in the pack, <laughs> as it were, not as for an audience member, I'm sure they're amazing, but when you're in the group of people, you know, the creators, uh, the VIPs and what have you. Uh, it's a bit like airports. They all start to look the same after a while <laughs> and you kind of forget where you are. It's quite terrifying um, because they are just the same. Every single one of them is basically the same. Uh, and so if you look uh, online, there was a live stream of the Berlin premiere of Atomic Blonde and I was interviewed on camera for it uh, and it was streamed on YouTube and uh, I think it might even have been shown on an entertainment channel in Germany and stuff as well. Uh, and I was, that was the first event like that I had ever done. And you can tell I'm quite nervous. You know, I was genuinely nervous, like, oh my goodness, this is all this razzmatazz and all of this came from a book that I wrote. This is amazing. Um, by the time I got to Los Angeles and did the premiere there, <sighs> I'm, you know, I'm blasé as anything. I'm like, yeah, whatever, dude, ask me a question. I don't care. <laughs> oh, that's not true. But, you know, it, you know what I mean? It, yeah, it's very, yeah. I'm joking, but it, it's very easy to become, uh, to become sort of used to that stuff. Yeah, and, but it's good that it gets sort of demystified a little. I think that's, that's healthy because, you know. Well, I think so. Yeah. And yeah. that's what allows me to get over it and not sort of wake up pinching myself every day is I've seen behind the curtain now yeah. and behind the curtain, it's not actually all that glamorous. <laughs> you know, when you're being herded out the back of a movie theater through an alleyway strewn with litter 
and God knows what that's been discarded from, you know, poor homeless people to climb into the back of one of 12 identical black SUVs to be sped across town somewhere. You're just like, hang on a minute. This is not, you know, and there's not a camera or journalist inside. There's just somebody there with a clipboard going, yeah, you're in car number five. Off you go. <laughs> that's not glamorous, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But uh, see the, that kind of stuff. I think it, it, it helps to know that kind of stuff, you know, if you know what I mean. It's like, it's, I think so. Yeah. 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 So it's not all the glitz and the glamour or how they imagine. It really say, is. Basically. Like I say, it's like airport travel. It's, yeah. you know, the first, the first few times that you fly to a foreign country, you're like, wow, this is amazing. And then when you've done it 20 times in the space of a year, you're just like, oh my God, what airport is this? I don't even know where I am anymore. <laughs> that, that's how I feel about Luton, basically. That's <laughs> just this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so so the, this is the last part uh, of our sure, talk. Sure. So so we're gonna go through your hardware and software with your hardware, your phone, your computer, and your tablet. I guess I'm guessing you have one. So yeah, yeah. So I have uh, an iPhone SE oh, because okay. yeah. I'm quite unlike you. I'm quite small, uh, <laughs> and I I have for a man quite small hands. You know, below average size hands for a man, and I don't want a phone any bigger than my SE. Um, I may well get a ten at some point, but probably not this model. I might wait for the revision because I think the 10 is because obviously you haven't got the chin and forehead, you know, that's probably going to be the most size of phone I would ever be able to practically use. Yeah. Um, I even with the SE, I still have to shuffle the phone around to reach the top corner with my thumb, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it, yeah, I've all, my phone's all my smartphone anyway, has always been an iPhone. Uh, cause like I said, I am an Apple and Mac nerd. Um, and I do love it very, very much. And, you know, if you think the iPhone hasn't changed the world, I don't even know what to say to you. Uh, <laughs> my computer is a 2014 Retina iMac. The first models of uh, Retina iMac with all flash um, storage. So I did the same as Jason Snell, actually, who we mentioned earlier. Uh, I did exactly the same as him. When this model came out, I bought, I maxed out everything i bought the biggest and baddest imac of that model that i could afford well they know that you could buy basically um so yeah it's got like a terabyte of flash memory in it you know it's the the big retina model and stuff uh, because you know i bought it what's that three more than three years ago now yeah. and it still feels like a brand new computer Uh, and that's why, you know, I've always, I'm a big advocate of buy the best thing you can afford and then it will last you a lot longer. Um, you know, if you buy cheap, it's what we call a false economy. I don't know if you have that phrase, um, or an equivalent of that phrase, but what I mean by that is if you buy something cheap, you think you're saving money, but then you have to replace it so much more quickly and it, and it causes you so much more stress because it's cheap and badly made that you actually end up spending more. And having a worse experience than if you just spent a lot of money to start with and bought something that would last you many years. So I've always taken that approach with computers. Uh, My tablet is a 9.7 iPad Pro from uh, about 18 months old from March of last year, March of 2016, I think. Um, I my next one might be the 10 inch model. 
But I, oh, I, just I, stop kidding yourself. It's gonna be. I, <laughs> like just don't don't well, stop with the well, might. What might be? Well, but the th- the thing yeah. is with uh with the uh, pro, my iPad is I'm a bit like Marco Armand in that I use my iPad every day, and I mean literally every day, uh-huh. but I don't use it for powerful tasks. So now that I have a retina uh screen iPad, I don't it's set. <laughs> I've set basically <laughs> until until it stops accepting iOS updates, I probably don't need to update it because I've got a pencil. It works fine with the pencil. It has a retina screen. It's got a lot of memory and stuff. You know, I bought the 128 gig model. Uh, I don't need to replace it. Right. Um, so, but I do love it. Let's say I use it absolutely every day, but I use it for email, Twitter, Facebook, Slack, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, or indeed as an e-reader. I do also use it as an e-reader. Um, and then for what else for podcasting, I've got, um, uh, what is it? The ATR 2100 mic yep. dynamic mic that so many podcasters use. I bought uh, eight I, of them so far. Really? Yeah, wow. For my co-hosts and stuff. So <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, they really are wonderful. Yeah. yeah. My, my co-host on, I do a heavy metal podcast called thrash it out. And my, uh, co-host there in America, he just bought one, literally just bought one. The last episode that we put out was his first with, the new microphone and he sounds a hundred percent better with it than he did with the blue yeti it's it's astounding um and then i run it all through an onyx blackjack blackjack yes i also bought four of those for my (laughs) they're wonderful aren't they built like a tank (laughs) i love they just feel indestructible love it um and that's pretty much it everything else is just you know i have a i have a regular desk uh i have bookshelves full of books i have a filing cabinet you know just the usual sort of dull stuff um travel gear is something else that i spend a lot of money on uh in order to sort of get the best thing i can um you know anybody who travels a lot for work i you know thoroughly if you're not already buying good quality travel gear from places like uh you know like my carry-on bag is a redox which cost me, I think, two hundred and fifty dollars yeah, for, a, and that's not that's not wheeled. That's an over-the-shoulder carry-on bag. <laughs> um, but it is the best carry-on bag I have ever I'll take ever your word for it. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I, I bought it almost ten years ago, and it's practically ah, like okay. new. It's okay. astounding. Okay. Um, and I have a Briggs and Riley rolling suitcase, which again is you know that was even more expensive, but again incredible quality and just if you can afford if you work in technology you can probably afford to buy you know slightly expensive gear like that and i thoroughly recommend it as long as it's quality you know the reason it's expensive is because of quality not a brand name yeah um not gold because, plated louis vuitton right stuff, like when i yeah yeah because when i started doing that with my travel gear the difference it made is amazing you know my traveling is so much less stressful now as a result so that's a practice that I thoroughly recommend. Uh, the other thing I will say, actually, about my keyboard setup is I have a wired mouse uh, and a wired extended keyboard because it's a desktop computer. They're not, <laughs> they're not going anywhere. I don't need to move my mouse and keyboard to another room. Yeah, I, I felt the anger in your voice there. So I've <laughs> never understood Bluetooth keyboards and mice. Like, if you have a laptop, okay, I, I get it. But if you have a desktop computer, what is the point? All you're doing is like, you know, creating again, stress for yourself, having to replace batteries and watching the charge of things. And, you know, you're dealing with lag and stuff. Just what is the point? 
just get a wired one. And also, I have an extended keyboard. Uh, I am one of the holdouts of people who actually uses the number pad, and I will be devastated on the day that Apple finally eliminates extended keyboards altogether because we know it's going to happen. Yeah, it's just a question of when. And when it does happen, I will, I will shed a tear because <laughs> I genuinely use my number pad all the time. You know, and the um, uh, enter key over there by the number pad, I use those all the time, every day. Sounds like you work in a bank then, like you're just doing some <laughs> sort of, or just a lot of Excel for some reason. <laughs> well, I do, uh, I do my own sort of accounting spreadsheet ah, and, okay. and entry, so there is that, yeah. Okay. But also, I just, I genuinely use there. I find it easier because I touch type, and I find it easier to touch type numbers. Yeah, on using the, yes, I'm the same keyboard. way. Yeah, I have a, yeah, I have a Steel Series uh, mechanical keyboard in front of me, which has a uh, number pad, so I totally right. understand that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so software, just the five apps you actually use on your phone. You can pull out your phone, just the five oh, apps. On my phone? Oh, yes. wow. Okay. Um, uh, do I get Safari for free? Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. The, the ones you like use most, even if it's the boring, you know, stock sort of system apps. Well, no, I do. I actually yeah. do. Use, Safari is one of the ones I use the okay. most because, because yeah. uh, my Twitter app is Twitterific. Yeah which I absolutely love. Don't get me wrong. I adore Twitterific. I supported it on Kickstarter for the Mac version recently. Uh, yeah, I absolutely love Twitterific. However, and I hate Twitter's web interface. However, the one th thing that Twitter's web interface is good for and is superior at is notifications. Yeah, notifications. Yeah. You know, because yeah. you get your mentions and your likes and your retweets and all of that all listed in one convenient space. And so I have... One of my permanent tabs on Safari on the iPhone is oh, that. Oh, the t Twitter web interface. Is that yeah. Twitter notifications tab, yeah. So I do genuinely use that all the time. Then I use, yeah, Twitterific is my Twitter client. I use the Gmail client, actually, for my email okay. um, because it's fine. You know, it just, it works. Uh, da -da -da, what else? Slack. More. Slack yeah, <laughs> Slack. Uh, Feedly is my RSS reader. Ah, same here. I just use um, it for the sync. I use a different app for reading it. But yeah. Oh, no, no, I actually read uh, using Feedly as well. Ah. Uh, I find it's it's fine as a reader. I'm not a heavy RSS user, but I am, I you know, I do use RSS and I use it for things that there is no substitute other than RSS. Yeah. So, yeah, Feedly, uh, you know, I need an RSS reader, but I don't need one that can cope with hundreds and hundreds of articles. Mm -hmm. uh, so Feedly is absolutely fine for me. And then I suppose uh, for a last one, as amazing as this as this may sound, and I do use many more apps than this, but Notes, Apple Notes, yeah. Ever ever since they got the sync, <laughs> the sync, so, yeah. Everybody yeah. says that to me now. Yeah, yeah. okay. It's the, yeah. Because the sync on Apple <laughs> Notes is rock solid, and ever since yeah. they sorted that, uh, I it, it actually kind of snuck up on me, <laughs> and then you know, kind of a while a while ago, I realized like, oh my god, I have hundreds of notes in this app you know, syncing between my Mac, my iPhone, my iPad, uh, and I use them and consult them all the time. Uh, it's almost replaced my desk notepad. The other thing in terms of hardware, because I'm a writer, I suppose, yeah. uh, is I do actually have a pen and paper notepad sitting in front of me at all times in case I have a sudden thought, need to make a note, whatever. I also have a moleskin notebook that I carry everywhere. Um, but I actually, I realize that I don't use the pen and paper notepad as much as I used to 
because uh, one of the apps I use on my Mac is Quicksilver, and it's so easy to call up notes with Quicksilver and just type in whatever my you know whatever note I want to make is immediately quit the app and know and trust that it will sync everywhere else that I could possibly need it. And so I actually do that more often now than I make a note on paper, which came as a surprise to me. I didn't realize <laughs> that, that that change had happened. Right. Then my final question, which is also always the same. If you had to pick one thing that you, uh, it's a thing, it can be your grandmother, so it's not a person, uh, that you feel like it was made for you, you might still have it, you might not. Like, what would that be? I don't still have it. And the <laughs> fact that I don't still have it is a, a source of constant regret. It's one of my few genuine regrets about, you know, sort of having gotten rid of something from my past. Uh, and that is my old, I say my old, you know, it's not mine anymore because I don't have it, but an old Yamaha electric guitar. Ah, okay. I used to... I'm a musician as well, uh, very strictly a hobbyist. Um, but I used to play in uh, very small indie heavy metal bands uh, and occasionally sing in them as well. Well, I say sing. <laughs> <laughs> More like growl, you know, growl and shout like Lemmy. Um, but I had a beautiful, well, no, it wasn't beautiful. That's why I loved it. It was actually hideous. It was incredibly <laughs> ugly. I had a Yamaha electric guitar that I bought secondhand. It was built like a tank. The body was so incredibly thick. Uh, and I'm a rhythm guitarist. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not about to play any kind of Eddie Van Halen lead solos. Uh, I'm very strictly a, a rhythm, jung, 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 rhythm guitarist. Um, and so I modified this thing into my perfect rhythm guitar it was covered in stickers because you know that's important yeah. when you're a young man playing heavy metal uh, and i mean when i say covered i mean covered like the guitar was black but you wouldn't know it from looking at it because it was three layers deep in stickers uh it had a floating tremolo i don't know if you know what that is oh the thing that, is, that you can put tag on and it'll do the woo -woo sound no sort of yeah it's like you know when uh you know the whammy bar yeah. Uh, you know, that goes, yeah. well, a floating tremolo goes in both directions. Ah, fancy so not then. fixed. So yeah. it can go, Mroom, but it can also go. Mroom. Um, uh, I hate floating tremolos. And so what I did was remove all the springs, put a block of wood in the back so that it only moved in one direction <laughs> <laughs> and then took off the whammy bar altogether. Cause I hate whammy bars. Uh, I replaced the volume and tone controls with razor blades. I replaced the uh, guitar strap with a length of chain that I bought from a hardware store. Uh, what else? I uh, It was, you know, it was the, the ultimate sort of metal guitar. But the tone that I got out of it was fantastic. And it played so easily. Like I said before, I don't have very big hands. So I have to be careful about sort of guitar necks and things you know if they're too thick and too rounded i can't play them properly this had a beautiful neck that i just took to immediately uh i battered the hell out of this thing i mean you know this guitar literally fell down the stairs several times and you know got thrown around all over the place and never ever broke or you know was in any kind of disrepair it was an amazing piece of kit um, and unfortunately I lost it in a house move. Lost uh, it. I lost it. Oh, I wow. don't, I don't know what happened to it or where it is. 
Uh, and that was many years ago. And like I say, it is my one regret because I just felt like me and that guitar were kind of, you know, we were in symbiosis almost. <laughs> um, I, I absolutely loved it. All right, that, that was an awesome answer. <laughs> uh, yeah, I really have nothing to say to that. But like, Anthony, thank you for doing this, honestly. You're welcome. Voila. <laughs> yeah, to stop with the pandering, the Slovenian pandering. Nazvedenje, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 you, you, Yeah, you were just uh, part of the apparatus slash Storming Mortal podcast. So, I, uh, s- s- yeah, but the, the convoluted two-way system, I publish stuff. But uh, thank you very much for doing this again and taking the time. And uh, that, that's, yeah, that's pretty, pretty much it. So, so say, say, say goodbye. Goodbye, everyone, and please go and buy my book. Yeah, go, go buy the book. The movie as well. Like, rent the movie. <laughs> the movie I don't, yes. Yeah, I don't think it's, if it's still in theaters here. I, I should check that, but yeah. No, it'll, it'll be out on Blu-ray by now. Yeah, and I, and yeah, and uh, my, my, my copy's on the way, so I'm going to read that because, you know. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, well, I, I'm sure I will, honestly. So, yeah. So, no pressure there, but yeah. 